Amen. You can be seated. Jesus. You know, I don't know about you, but uh, I'm a big fan of film. And uh, I love the Lord of the Rings series. I love the Hobbit series. I've, uh, I've, I, I've not read the Lord of the Rings books, but I've read the Hobbit series books, and, uh, but I've seen all the, all the movies. And as I was thinking about this Father's Day message for tonight, I, I couldn't get away from this one scene in the movie of The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies. And so I'm going to share it with you now, and it's going to set us up for where we're headed over the next several minutes. Now I have to watch that movie this weekend, right? Just have to see that one scene. The first thing I want to say is this. All the time we spend hollering at you, children, because you're not holding the flashlight right when we're doing a project, it's because we're training you because we might have to one day kill a dragon together. So I'm just saying, it's for your good. It's for your good. Hey, I'm not showing you that because it's a great father and son scene, although it is that. Is it not? Look at me, move to, right? The trust they have, this moment where they conquer impossible odds together, but that's not why I'm showing you that scene. That's what we focus on because that's who we want to be. But what I know about my own journey after 54 years and what I know about many of your journey is what we don't want to admit is that there is a little bit of smog in us, a little bit of the fiery dragon, that we move about throughout our days with this feeling of invincibility and what we don't realize is that there is a chink in our armor too. There is a vulnerability that we have to temptation in this life that if we're not careful, that if we don't deal with it, that it can be our undoing. So Father, I pray for fathers and men tonight as we challenge one another with the truth of your word. We know, God, that that scale that is missing because of our humanity will never be dealt with fully until we're in heaven, but we know that you've given us tools to overcome it in the here and now. So I pray that you would find us tonight, those of us watching online, those of us that are here in this room, that there would be a new resolve that would rise up inside of us to stop succumbing to the weakness of the chink in our armor in Christ's name. Come on. And everybody said, amen. First John 2, 15 to 17 reads this way. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, here it comes, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. If you've been around a church for any amount of time, you've heard these three spoken of before. Listen to what John says. He says, it is not from the Father, but it is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God continues to live forever. This is the chink in our armor, men, and it's called entitlement. Entitlement. I've spent some time this week looking back over the story of my life and, and remembering some of my not-so-greatest moments, and can I just tell you that almost all of them, almost all of them began with this one simple sentiment, and it's called, I deserve. I deserve. It is the chink in our armor. It is the scale that is missing. And this feeling of I deserve, this sentiment of I deserve is so articulated here in 1 John chapter 2 because it's I deserve to feel good, I deserve to have more, and I deserve to be known. I deserve to feel good, sin follows. I deserve to have more, sin follows. I deserve to be known, sin follows. When we give ourselves to a sense of entitlement to these desires, it becomes permission giving for us to do things oftentimes that we already know that we shouldn't. I'm not talking about doing things out of ignorance or naivete because we don't know any better. I'm talking about those moments in our lives where we choose to compromise. We choose to compromise. 
because there is a feeling of entitlement that is stirring inside of us. I'm going to show you tonight where that sense of entitlement begins because we find it in Eden. We come by that missing scale honestly through Adam. I want to show you tonight that Satan himself approached Jesus in the wilderness through this temptation of entitlement. And then for the bulk of our time tonight, I want to spend talking to you about three flawed fathers, which is the title of this message, Noah, Moses, and Solomon. Listen to me, man. Just because we are flawed and have failed, just because we are flawed and have failed, doesn't mean God sidelines us. He hasn't given up on your destiny. Don't you do it either. We're we're all flawed and we have failed. And if we're not careful, entitlement and our sin becomes despair to say, because I have failed, God doesn't want to use me. And this book is filled with stories that tell us just the opposite. And the three fathers that you're going to see tonight, they failed in huge ways. But God still chose to use them. He knew, can we agree? It's not as though their failure was a surprise to God. God wasn't running around having going, oh my, I didn't know they were going to do this. Knew they were going to do it. Still chose them. God knows about the mistakes that you're going to make. He certainly knows the ones that you have. But you know what? He's still chosen you for a destiny. He's still chosen you to have an impact in this life. We know what it means to be sidelined. If you play sports for any amount of time, you know what it's like to not be chosen. You know what it's like to not be picked. You know what it's like to see the other players rushing out onto the field and you being left behind. And sometimes those feelings that begin with us early in our childhood, because of those experiences, if they're left unresolved, then we use that as permission to stay on the sideline and on the bench as fathers and husbands. And we've got to get onto the playing field. Our families are dependent upon us. As I was praying over that portion of the sermon, I couldn't help but laugh. I was thinking about my early Little League days. I mean, like when I was really little. They didn't have T-ball when I was coming along, just after the dinosaurs. And whatever the earliest league was, I, my team was called the Giants. My mom still has the hat, right? Still has the hat. I can barely fit it onto my fist. It's green. It's got a big G on the front. And I was on the Giants. And I, and, and I remember, because I was, I was not naturally athletically inclined in any way. And I, I'll rem, I never remember being on the bench, right, with a couple of us that were always on the bench. And, and baseball for us was how many pieces of bubble gum could we fit into our mouth? Right, that was baseball. Right, there was the big box of that, you know, gum that has like the flowery. I don't even know if they still make that kind of chewing gum. You're just right. You 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 develop TMJ. You you have a jaw condition from trying to chew on that gum. And we would try to fit as many pieces. And I had probably about five or six pieces in my mouth. And we're joking around. And all of a sudden, I hear the coach say, "Freddie Mitchocks, get into right field," because I grew up in Verina, and that's how they pronounced French back then. Freddie Mitchocks. And then he said this, and I kid you not. And stop chasing those butterflies. Yeah, because in practice, that's what I did. No one hit the ball to me. I knew I wasn't going to play. So you just make the best of it as a little kid. And for me, that's chasing butterflies around the fields of Verina. Freddie Mitchock's get into right field. Quit chasing those butterflies. I wasn't expecting to play. I wasn't expecting to be on the field. I wasn't expecting other people to expect something of me. And sometimes, as a father, the feeling of other people expecting of us can be weighty. But I want you to know tonight, you have what it takes if you are a father. You have what it takes because God's chosen you. If you are married and you feel overwhelmed, I want you to, you have what it takes. God has put in you everything that you need to thrive and for your family to thrive. No matter how much you failed already. He has not given up on you. I remember a few years later into my early baseball career, because of where my birthday fell, I didn't move up to the next league like all the other kids. So I had that one season where I was bigger than most of the other kids. And that was right around the time where they began to let girls play on the boys' teams. I'm not trying to stir up any controversy. I'm just telling you about my journey. Now, Even though I was the biggest on my team for boys, now that the girls are coming in, and because they grow a little bit sooner, they're really big (laughs) at that age. And I remember being the catcher 
true story. I've shared this here before. I don't share it very often because it still shames me. But I was the catcher, and, and, and there was a, the ball was put into play, and there was a girl on the base, and she's rounding third, and she's coming from home, and they throw the ball to me. I catch it, and I'm standing there. The plate is behind me. I know that I'm supposed to block the plate. And I'm standing there, and I see this girl running at me. He's about three times my size. And I knew in that moment I had a decision I needed to make. I'm either going to take one for the team, or I'm going to live to play another day. So in all of my courage, and I'm sure much to my father's disgrace, as I stood in front of the plate with the ball, I did this. And she ran right by and scored. Now, I don't remember whether or not we won that day or not. But I knew that I had won because I was smarter than the other kids on my team who would have gotten trampled underfoot and been in the ER. See, sometimes as a father, making the best decision and the right decision is not always the popular decision. And sometimes you've got to endure other people thinking less of you to do what's right. Just because we are flawed and have failed doesn't mean God sidelines us. He hasn't given up on your destiny. Don't you do it either. Don't you do it. The Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, 1 to 7. Now the serpent was more cunning than any animal on the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God really said you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, you shall not eat of it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you certainly will not die. The serpent said to the woman, you certainly will not die. For God knows that on the day you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. Listen to what it says. Now here we're given commentary into the woman's thoughts, into Eve's thoughts. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it was desirable to make one wise. Here we see it right here. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. She took some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and ate it. See, many of us grew up in, 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 in churches where the story really wasn't told completely because we're, it's almost as though Eve was there alone in the garden and she later finds Eve to give him the fruit. But that's not what the text tells us. Adam was standing there the whole time. So Lucifer, Satan, wasn't just talking to her. He was talking to him. And he did not step in and intervene as he should have. Listen to what it says. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves waist coverings. Here we see right in the beginning where Eve thinks, and Adam too, which is the intent of the text, that they both saw that it was good for food. There was desire and entitlement that I deserve to feel good by eating that fruit. Because the lie that that is based on is that God can sometimes be neglectful. That because he is divine and because he is not human, that he doesn't understand the human experience. And so what Satan here is tempting Adam and Eve with is that God doesn't understand what you really need and you should have this, you're entitled to it. You deserve to feel good. It says in the text that it was the delight to the eyes, the lust of the eyes. And that's based on the lie that God is withholding from us, right? This, this idea that God could give us something, but he chooses not to. And we don't care necessarily why it is, but sometimes in this life, we just have this feeling that God is not giving us something that we want and we feel like we deserve it and he's withholding. And all of a sudden, this feeling of entitlement begins to well up inside of our heart that says, I deserve to have more. I deserve to have more. And then the commentary tells us that it was desirable to make one wise. And this is built on the lie that God is egotistical. That he does not want to share his glory. 
because he has a problem with his ego. That, that, that he is saying to humanity that I need to lord over you to make myself feel better. But we know that that's not the nature of who God is. But once we slip into that lie that God is egotistical, the entitlement of I deserve to be known, I want to have my power, I want my own glory, we find ourselves giving in to desire. I'm telling you that as I look back over my life, and I trust that as you're looking back maybe over your life as I'm giving this message to you tonight, you're finding that the moments of your greatest failure started with a feeling of entitlement. There was a desire that stirred in you. I deserve to feel good. I deserve to have more. And I deserve to be known. We see that in the wilderness, as we move forward in time in the text, we come to Matthew 4. I'm not going to read it for the sake of time, but it's verses 1 through 11. These notes are always online. You can download them this coming week. But here we see Satan testing Jesus' humanity because we believe that Jesus was there in the garden in the beginning of time. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were all there at creation. Jesus being born into this world was him stepping out of heaven and into the earth, which means that Satan knew that Jesus was there then and now he's here now. And Satan knows that in the garden, Jesus is divine. And now that he's here in the flesh, he is also divine, which is the miracle of Jesus, but he's also fully man. He's fully God and fully man. And so now the devil's saying, let's see how you do now that you've got a chink in your armor because you've taken on the nature of Adam. It's interesting, isn't it? As we read this text, what we find is that Jesus is tempted in three specific ways. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Because the devil is saying to himself, I've got you now. Because there is a scale missing in your armor through the human experience, I'm going to rob you of your destiny as the savior of the world. He tempts him to turn the stone into bread after he's not eating. Now you might say, well that doesn't seem like much of a temptation. Don't eat anything for 40 days, then come back and tell me how excited you would be for a piece of bread. He's trying to tempt Jesus into this feeling of I deserve to feel good. He does it a little bit different order. He jumps right to the pride of life next. That's where he takes him to the highest place at the temple and he, and he tells him just jump off and then you can command angels to rescue you. There's, there's this idea of Jesus, you deserve to be known. People should know who you are. Your fame should be renowned. But he does not succumb. So the devil comes at him one more time and takes him and shows him all the kingdoms of the earth, the lust of the eyes, and he says, all of this could be yours. Now Jesus is thinking, all of this is already mine. You're offering something that already belongs to me. But in his humanity, I'm telling you, there's a moment where, where he feels the nature of humanity. And the devil is prompting him, you, you deserve to have more than what the Father has offered to you. Entitlement is my vulnerability, and so it is for each of us, and so it certainly was for Noah, our first flawed father tonight. The story of Noah talks about too much wine. We're gonna talk too much wine, too much wealth, too much work. Flawed father number one. Genesis nine, starting 18, the sons of Noah came out of the boat with their father, were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham is the father of Canaan. And from these three sons, Noah, from Noah came all the people now that populate the earth. After the flood, Noah began to cultivate the ground and planted a vineyard. And one day he drank some of the wine he had made and he became drunk and he lay naked inside of his tent. Because if you have any experience with drunkenness, you, often, you also know that nakedness soon follows. It was true then and it is today. 
Ham, the father of Canaan, saw that his father was naked and went outside and told his brothers. And then Sham and Japheth took a robe and held it over their shoulders and backed into the tent. I'm going to talk about this, why this is. And as they did this, they looked the other way so they would not see him naked. Now, I don't know about you, but I sympathize with Noah. If you think quarantining during COVID was hard, talk to Noah when we get to heaven. Just saying. He was 600 years old when he entered the ark. Had a whole new dimension to grumpy old man. 600 years enters the ark. You know how long he's in the ark? Just over a year. Just over a year. Quarantined in a wooden ship with just his family, no electricity, no running water, and animals that have to go to the bathroom a lot. And, and, you're, and it wasn't just two by two, right? That's what we teach our kids because there's a complexity to the story they're not ready for. There were only two animals of each kind that were unclean, but the animals that were clean that was about to come later through the Mosaic Law, there were seven of those. And there were lots of animals on the ark because those were animals that could be offered and could be eaten. So there needed to be more of them to populate the earth. I'm just saying, when Noah steps off the ark, this feeling that he had, I need a drink, Many of you felt that way this past year. And studies show, all joking aside, that alcohol consumption skyrocketed, skyrocketed during quarantine. Why? Because stress, suffering, unexpected tragedy plays onto this feeling of entitlement that we have which says, I deserve to feel good. And that's what we see Noah wrestling with for himself. I deserve to feel good. It's interesting here that two of his sons, as they're backing in, this is such an important story for us, especially in modern day society, because we've lost all sense of modesty. That they're backing in with this robe to put it over their father as to not see his nakedness. And the reason for that is because nakedness is sacred. Because pleasure is sacred. I'm not doing a message on sexuality. That's gonna come later this year. We do a sermon on that at least once a year. But I thought this was an important time to insert this because sexuality is also pleasure for us. God is not neglectful in any way. And all of the things that he says to us don't do, it's not because he's robbing us of pleasure, it's because he wants us to have the best pleasure that we could ever have in this life. He's actually trying to protect us from settling from less. He doesn't want you to settle for less. You've heard me say this many times, hedon, not hedon, although that's appropriate, hedonism. Eden is Hebrew for pleasure. Did you know that? The first place that's geographically named in the Bible, all the things that God have picked, and he calls it pleasure. Why? Because God's idea was pleasure. And he wants the human experience to be filled with pleasure. But there's boundaries to pleasure. And the boundaries of pleasure are to keep us from settling for less. He's protecting us from mediocrity. And nakedness is associated with sexuality. And here, early on in the biblical narrative, in the biblical text, God is trying to create a record that says, do not devalue the sacredness of nakedness because pleasure is holy. God is perfectly attentive. Trust in his plan for pleasure. In spite of Noah being a flawed father, You see, because we should never put our children in the situation where they're dealing with the consequence of our sin. That's his failure as a father. Here he is, the father of all people, because all people come from Noah and his family. Here he is, drunk and naked in his tent, and his children are having to care for him. That's not right. That's not right. As fathers... We should always be prepared and on guard so that we can be the ones to minister to our family and their failings. Not that we're not going to make mistakes. But if we do make mistakes, may, may it never be, may it never be that the consequence of that mistake befalls on our children. Yeah. 
may it never be. But in spite of all of that, God still used him. God was not surprised by Noah's drunken, naked stupor. He knew he was going to do it, but yet he picked him anyways. And the picture of the ark is one of the most powerful prophetic pictures in all of Scripture. Because the ark floating on that ocean, floating on the waters that covered the earth, is this picture that says to the world that we can trust God and his plan and that his plan will always lead to life and everything else leads to death. The picture of that ark says to you and me that God always has our best interest at heart and he will make a way for us if we would only yield to him. All the people in the world that he could have picked, but yet he picked him. A flawed father to tell the world to trust God. Solomon, flawed father number two, too much wealth. Too much wealth. I'm not against wealth, but I'm against wealth becoming an idol for us. When the queen of Sheba heard of Solomon's fame, which brought honor to the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She arrived in Jerusalem with a large group of attendants and a great caravan of camels loaded with spices, large quantities of gold and precious jewels. And when she met with Solomon, she talked with him about everything that she had on her mind. Solomon had answers for all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain. And when the queen of Sheba realized how very wise Solomon was, and when she saw the palace he had built, she was overwhelmed. She was also amazed at the food on his tables, the organization of his officials and their splendid clothing, the cupbearers and the burnt offering Solomon made, at, Solomon made at the temple of the Lord. She exclaimed to the king, listen to this, everything I heard in my country about your achievements and wisdom is true. I didn't believe what was said until I arrived here and saw it with my own eyes. In fact, I had not heard of, I had not even heard half of it. Huh. Your wisdom and prosperity are far beyond what I was told. How happy your people must be. What a privilege for your officials to stand here day after day listening to your wisdom. You swear all this flattery. It's just heaping on, isn't it? Praise the Lord your God who delights in you and placed you on the throne of Israel because the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king so you can rule with justice and righteousness. The very next chapter, chapter 11 even the order in which the Bible is given to us is instructive, is the story of Solomon's abject moral failure as a human being and how Israel was going to be taken from his line and that they would enter into centuries of civil war. From 10 to chapter 11, it's unbelievable the turn of events that take place. And I think that these texts are given to us. I'm not going to read chapter 11 for the sake of time. You should read it yourself. That at some point something happened in Solomon. Who we know as he prayed that God would give him wisdom. The Bible says that no one will ever be more wise than him. No one ever until the end of time. That at some point in his journey... There was a desire that began to well up inside of him that said, I deserve to have more. And more beget more, beget more, beget more until his appetite was insatiable. The same person that gives us the book of Proverbs gives us the book of Ecclesiastes. And what's sad is that he gives us the book of Ecclesiastes after he gives us Proverbs. It should be that in life, it should be the other way around. That we live a life of Ecclesiastes in foolishness because we lack the wisdom of Proverbs. But Solomon gave us all of the wisdom of Proverbs which he had and then even still he becomes Ecclesiastes. Why? Because something inside of him felt entitled to have more. And for him, the more that he sought was never enough. And it was not just his undoing. It was his family's undoing, and it was his nation's undoing. See, there's a sobering side to tonight's message. Sometimes our missteps can have generational implications. 
But in spite of Solomon being a flawed father, God still chose to use him. I'm going to read this excerpt out of the treasure principle. I love this little book. It says, if you imagine heaven as a place where you will strum a harp in endless tedium, you, you'll probably, you probably dread it. But if you trust scripture, you will be filled with joy and excitement as you anticipate your heavenly home. As I've written elsewhere, heaven will be a great place of rest and relief from burdens of sin and suffering. But it is also a place of great learning, activity, artistic expression, exploration, discovery, camaraderie, and service. The Bible paints an incredible picture of what heaven's going to be. Some of us will even reign with Christ. And he gives textual examples of all these. You can get the book and read it yourself. Faithful servants will be put in charge of many things, we're told. Christ will grant some followers leadership over cities in proportion to their service on earth. Scripture refers to five different crowns suggesting leadership positions. We'll even command angels, we're told. We are given these eternal rewards for doing good works here, now, persevering under persecution, showing compassion to the needy and treating our enemies kindly. So much of this life experience is in preparation for an eternal destiny. For an eternal destiny. Men, you have a destiny here, now. You have one then, too. You have a destiny here, and that destiny that is here is getting you ready for the destiny that's there. I love that as God looked throughout time and saw that all that Solomon was going to do wrong, and saw that all that Solomon would fail at, and, and saw all of his shortcomings, you know what he said? I still choose sin. And he says the same thing about you. In spite of Solomon being a flawed father, we should never spend our adult lives giving our children the example of how not to be men. That was Solomon's error. But God still used him to give the world the most powerful prophetic book that represents us and our relationship with the Holy Spirit. See, because that's what the book of Proverbs is about. It's about when you make a vow of devotion to Christ, the Holy Spirit, who is all wise, comes and lives inside of you. And you have a personal counselor walking with you every moment of your life who is there to whisper and guide you in all wisdom so you don't have to live out Ecclesiastes. Proverbs is the picture to you and I that the Holy Spirit is here and inside of us. May we all listen and heed his voice. Our last one is this, Moses Flawed father number three. Too much wine, too much wealth, too much work. Too much work. Exodus 18, five through eight, reads this way. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, now came to visit Moses in the wilderness. L -l Listen to this little subtle, subtle insertion. He brought Moses' wife and two sons with him. Are you tracking Moses is at work. He doesn't come home anymore. So now his father-in-law has to bring his wife and his children to his place of employment because he's neglecting them. Jethro had sent a message to Moses saying, I, Jethro, your father-in-law, am coming to see you with your wife and your two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. He bowed low and he kissed him. And they asked about each other's welfare, and then they went into Moses' tent. And Moses told his father-in-law everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and Egypt on behalf of Israel. He also told about all the hardships that they had experienced along the way and how the Lord had rescued his people from all their troubles. These are important things. These are all things that God called him to do, but not at the expense of his responsibilities to his wife and his children. Not at that expense. This is the pride of life. I deserve to be known. We struggle with that one, don't we, men? I deserve to be known. 
Picking up in verse 13, it says, The next day Moses took his seat to hear the people's disputes against each other, and they waited before him from morning until evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he asked, What are you really accomplishing here? We know what he was accomplishing. He was accomplishing this feeling of how important I must be, which we struggle with as men. Why are you trying to do all of this alone where everyone stands around you from morning till evening? You, you following the text here? His father-in-law is so kind and gentle, isn't he? He never says you're neglecting your wife and children. He said, never says you have an ego problem. He's just trying to point Moses in the right direction. Moses replied, because the people come to me to get a ruling from God. There it is, right? They, they need me. And when a dispute arises, they come to me, and I am the one who settles the cases between the quarreling parties. I inform the people of God's decrees and give them his instructions. <laughs> Moses' father-in-law says, this is not good, with an explanation point in my Bible. This is not good. Moses' father-in-law exclaimed, you are going to wear yourself out and the people too. This job is too heavy of a burden for you to handle and all by yourself. Right? And then it goes on where we see that he, Jethro helps Moses create an organizational structure to help share the load. Jethro's motivation is not so they can be efficient. It is so his family will not fracture. Efficiency was a byproduct, but the value that's being presented here to Moses is, Moses, you have an ego problem and you have a family problem because you're neglecting your wife and your children. Genesis 3, 16 to 19. Genesis 3, 16 to 19. This is New Living Translation. This is after Adam and Eve, so we're moving back in time, have sinned, and God now is giving them their consequence. Because you have done this, as we read earlier, you are cursed. More than all animals, domestic or wild, you will crawl on your belly. This is him talking to Satan. Groveling in the dust as long as you live, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. That's a prophetic utterance of the coming of Christ. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. That's talking about Jesus being crucified, but through the crucifixion, he conquers sin and death. Verse 16, then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and in pain you will give birth and you will desire to control your husband but he will rule over you. Verse 17, and to the man he said, since you listened to your wife and you ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you and your life will struggle. And your life, in, in all your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. This is important for us to understand. When we make a vow of devotion to Christ, we are not delivered from the experience of the curse. We're delivered from the authority of the curse. I know it's Father's Day weekend, but if you'd like to do a quick survey after church, you can ask all the women here who have had children who are devoted followers of Christ, how painless birthing that baby was. In fact, don't do that. Because some of you might not survive that survey. We talk about being delivered from the curse, but it's important that we've not been delivered from the experience of the curse. The human experience is still ever present. And it will be until the end of this age and the new heaven and the new earth comes. And the same is true for us men. Work is still a toil and a labor. It's still a toil and a labor. No matter how much you enjoy your work, there is a labor to it if you're doing it well. We're not delivered from the experience of the curse, but what we are delivered from is the authority of the curse. You and I have been delivered from the curse's authority over us that we find our sense of meaning in these earthly pursuits. We find our identity now, come on, through being a child of the living God and a disciple of Jesus Christ, our Savior. 
Do we find purpose in these earthly things? Sure we do. But these are not the things that give us our identity. And if those things give us our identity, then we're just going to move from one identity crisis in life from one to the next. When my identity is in Christ, and then I'm a child of God, I find purpose in my life role, but I find my identity in my spiritual family. If you do not walk in the liberty and the freedom from the authority of the curse, you will always be prone to the entitlement of I deserve to be known. It is the story of the Tower of Babel playing over in our lives again and again and again. It was the people of the earth that said, let us make a name for ourselves. And when we posture in a way, come on, especially men and fathers tonight, in a way that is seeking to make a name for ourselves, we rob ourselves of the greatest privilege that we will ever have in this life, and that is to make a name for Christ. The greatest sense of fulfillment you will ever have in this life, ever have, no matter how great your marriage is, no matter how awesome your family is, the greatest privilege that you will ever have is to make Jesus known in this world. In fact, I would argue with you tonight that until you make that your greatest desire, you will never be the husband and the father that God has created you to be. Let us make him known and him alone. Men, be proud of your work. Be excellent in your work. Our work is part of the Imago Dei. Did you know that? Part of how you bear the image of God is that you create through the work that you do. You create through the work that you do. Even the work that we do our, by our own hands with our own mind is an opportunity for us to point people to the glory of God. But never be bound to your work, men, especially at the expense of everything in this life that is eternal. See, in spite of Moses being a flawed father, our families should never feel neglected by anything, especially tasks given to us by God himself. God still used him. Even though he looked through time and saw that Moses was going to fail, even though he looked through time and saw that Moses was going to neglect his family and have a problem with his ego, God said, I choose you. And he says the same thing over your life tonight. He chose Moses to give us. Each of these three men give us three of the most powerful prophetic pictures in all of Scripture. Moses is the central player in the story of the Exodus where we're given the miracle of the Passover, which tells us that Jesus will one day die for the sins of the world. It's powerful to me that as egregious as their failings were, their destiny was still great and grand. So I say to you again, fathers and husbands, all of us are flawed and we have failed. But we have a destiny that's waiting for us in our tomorrows. And we've got to stop letting our failures of our yesterday as permission to give up on the destiny that's waiting for us in our tomorrow. God has forgiven us. Forgive yourself. Embrace the forgiveness that he wants to give to you. Find the healing that you need. Immerse yourself in community of the church. And whatever else you need that we might recommend that you're going to need for help and healing for what's been done, but let's move forward together and do great things for God in this life. I'm going to use the rest of our time tonight instead of having the band come back up. We'll give them the rest of the evening off. So I want to recommend a few books to you. I'm going to give you some resources. If these ideas and these thoughts are new for you, if you struggle with this sense of entitlement of I deserve to feel good, then I'm going to recommend, this is one of the most important books that I have ever read as a Christian man, and I don't say that lightly. It's Sex, Men, and God by Doug Weiss. It, it has sections in it that are designed for therapy for people with sexual brokenness, which might not pertain to you, but everything in this where he helps you understand your brain, if you're a man, you need to understand this. 
you, you might not realize this, you have a full-time pharmacist inside of your head. Did you know that? Every day that you wake up, and even while you're sleeping, it's like a mad scientist inside of your brain putting together all kinds of cocktails of chemicals to make you feel good, and it can't wait to just dump it right into your bloodstream. Yeah. Every time you ride by Krispy Kreme and see the hot sign on, that pharmacist in your brain is going to town, just dumping those things in your bloodstream, and you're feeling good. You turn on in. After your family's gone to bed at night and you're alone and you open up your phone and you switch to private on your iPhone and you go to places where you're not supposed to, it's because the pharmacist in your brain is a mad scientist that's just dumping chemicals into your bloodstream because you deserve to feel good. This book helps you understand how your brain works And if you don't understand how your brain works, you're fighting with both hands tied behind your back. Stop doing it. I deserve to have more. We struggle with that as men and fathers. I'm giving you, you notice these books I'm suggesting for the men? If you're not a reader, you can read these. And if not, let me know. I'll come over and I'll read it to you. I'm gonna get some texts from some wives tonight. Pastor Fred's here. It's for your bedtime story. <laughs> the treasure principle. This is so good. At some point, you've got to shift off of the temporal onto the eternal. I'm not against wealth. I'm not against having nice things. I'm not against enjoying this life because that's part of the human experience. As long as those things don't become idols. As long as those things don't supplant the generosity that's supposed to flow from me as long as the what I have doesn't stop me from what I'm supposed to give for the kingdom, the treasure principle. I deserve to have more. The last one is this, I deserve to be known. I love this book, The Life You've Always Wanted. This is an old one, but a good one by John Ortberg. The Life You've Always Wanted. Or maybe it should be titled The Life You Should Have Always Wanted. But in this book, he talks about this idea of what life is really about. And you know what it's not about? It's not about you, and it's not about me, it's about him. And when we make it about him, the irony of it is is that it does in some way become about us because he always has our best interest at heart, and he wants us to find goodness in this life, and he wants you to find it too. This is the key to victory over entitlement. This is the key to victory. I'm going to turn to this verse. I'm not going to read it yet, but this is where I want to close, so I want to get there. This this is the key. I want you to hear this tonight, man. This is the key to the victory over entitlement, especially in these three areas. When I resolve myself to only wanting heaven's pleasure, heaven's riches, and heaven's fame, Something happens inside of me as a man. When I say to myself, when I declare over myself, God, all all that I want in this life is heaven's pleasure, heaven's riches, and heaven's fame. When I step into that declaration, when that becomes the cry of my heart, nothing more and nothing less. We never succumb to entitlement. Nothing more and nothing less. Because God wants you to have all the pleasure that he's planned for you. He wants you to have all the riches that he's planned for you. Materially so. Not not just eternal rewards, but material things. You have a material destiny that he wants to see fulfilled in your life. And you know what? He wants you to have all of heaven's fame. All of the notoriety that is supposed to come to you in this life, he wants you to have it. We're not trying to reinstitute the monastic movement. We say that so many times. I I want nothing less than all that heaven has for me. But I don't want any more than what heaven has for me either. Heaven's pleasure, heaven's riches, and heaven's fame. Husbands and fathers and men, let those things be the three desires of your heart. 
And that scale that is missing from you and from me, it will always be missing until we're born into heaven. But until then, by having the right desires, by having the right desires, we won't succumb to the wrong ones. And this feeling of I deserve to feel good and to have more and to be known will stop becoming traps for me just as it wasn't a trap for Jesus. You're going to face them, but you don't have to fail in them. Stand with me. Hey, before I read this, I just want to remind you that at the end of every service, we always have people here down at the front to pray for you, not just for fathers and men this time around, but any of you that are here. If you're watching from online, you can click that uh, button on your screen and ask for prayer, and you'll go into a private chat room, and one of our hosts would love to pray with you. But if you're here and you came with people, they'll wait for you. They'll wait for you. You come and pray. If you choose to stay in here, just please maintain an attitude of worship and prayer. If you want to joke and talk and lie, we want you to do that with people, right? But just please do that outside or maybe in the cafe so we can focus on ministering to people in prayer here. Listen to this. This is Psalm 84 too. I long, this is what the psalmist writes, I long, yes, I faint with longing. See, because desire is a good thing as long as we're desiring the right things. I long, yes, I faint with longing to enter the courts of the Lord. I want to be in God's presence, and I want to be with God's people. Listen to what it says. With my whole being, body, and soul, I will shout joyfully to the living God. Father, may it be that every father and every man, no matter how young or how old, that's here in this room tonight or watching online or is going to be watching at some point in our future, I pray that that psalm would manifest. It's a prophetic declaration over them tonight. I pray that it would become their reality, that the greatest desire of their life would be to be in your presence and to be with your people. And that when that temptation comes to feel good and to have more and to be known, something inside of them, a righteous indignation would well up and that they would say to their own self, to their own temptation, I want nothing more and nothing less than heaven's pleasure, heaven's riches, and heaven's fame. In Christ's name, Everybody said together, amen. Happy Father's Day. Happy Juneteenth.